your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard the Science Express. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, we're going to make some stops today. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to stop for a chat about inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, with Drs. Alain Bitton and Peter Lakatosh. Uh, we're also going to chat about uh, COVID uh, because this is not going away. But first, we're going to start with the Brazilian pit viper. <clears throat> and you would not want to meet this creature in the jungles of South America. These snakes can grow up to five feet in length. And no, they do not live in pits. <clears throat> That's not why they are called pit vipers. Their name comes from the heat-sensing glands that look like little pits found on either side of their triangular-shaped head. And uh, this enables them to locate prey in total darkness. The viper's venom is so potent that natives have used it to tip their poison arrows. But it was not only natives in the jungle who were interested in the pit viper's venom. Scientists in the lab were also intrigued by the poison's mechanism of action. Way back in 1939, Dr. Mauricio Roja e Silva in Brazil <clears throat> injected pit viper venom into animals to study what sort of changes it caused in their blood chemistry. It took a few years before a peptide that was to be named bradykinin, from the Greek word for slow and movement, was isolated from the animal's bloodstream. The subjects, that is the animals, moved slowly all right, eventually moved not at all. Bradykinin caused a dramatic drop in blood pressure that often led to death. Not always, though, because the body recognizes bradykinin as a foreign substance and mobilizes an enzyme that can break it down. So, unsurprisingly, dosage of the venom is critical. A small dose can be survived, but a larger dose is too much for the enzyme to deal with. In any case, the action of bradykinin introduced the possibility of using it as a blood pressure-lowering drug. However, since this is a peptide, meaning a short chain of amino acids, it cannot be taken orally. It is broken down during digestion, doesn't enter the bloodstream, broken down into amino acids, and uh, once... They enter the bloodstream into uh, once they enter the bloodstream, they no longer are bradykinin. All was not lost, however, thanks to some research in 1967 that revealed the mechanism by which the body raises blood pressure when that is required. A substance called angiotensin forms upon a signal from the kidneys and is converted into another compound called angiotensin II which is a peptide that constricts blood vessels and that results in an increase in blood pressure. This conversion requires an enzyme appropriately named angiotensin-converting enzyme, or commonly abbreviated as ACE. In 1968, John Vane, who would go on to win the 1982 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine for his discovery of the mechanism of the action of aspirin, well, in 1968, he showed that viper venom peptides inhibit the activity of that enzyme and prevent the formation of angiotensin II, and therefore they can lower blood pressure. <clears throat> the challenge now 
was to figure out what part of the bradykinin molecule binds to the enzyme to inhibit it. And a drug based on that part of bradykinin's molecular structure could conceivably be developed to lower blood pressure. Between 1970 and 1973, chemists at ER Squibb, which is a very large uh, pharmaceutical company, tested over 2,000 different compounds that had molecular structure similar to parts of bradykinin, and they were finally rewarded. They found an effective one. This would hit uh, the market in 1981 as captopril. Eventually, a number of other such ACE inhibitors, for example, Vasotec and Altase, were developed with a better side effect profile than captopril, and these have found widespread use not only for lowering blood pressure, also in the treatment of congestive heart failure and kidney problems. Now, to the interesting connection here. The infiltration of COVID-19 into our lives <clears throat> has raised another issue with ACE inhibitors. When they are administered, the body senses the drop in blood pressure and kicks in some extra help with the formation of another enzyme called ACE2 that reconverts the pressure-elevating angiotensin II back into angiotensin. Now, here's the problem. This enzyme can also end up attached to the surface of cells where it acts as a handle for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The gripping of this handle is the first step in the virus's entry into cells. And then, of course, it goes on to replicate. So here's an obvious question. Do people who take angiotensin-converting inhibitors, were they at greater risk for COVID-19? It's a very serious question, since these drugs are widely used. Early observations indicated that people who were taking these drugs really had COVID cases that were more serious. But follow-up studies that used control groups did not find the link to ACE inhibitors. The reason that at first it seemed like these people were at greater risk was because people who, who take these drugs are people who are taking them for hypertension or heart problems. And those conditions predispose one to COVID-19. Nevertheless, upon reading the early report, some people gave up taking their uh, ACE inhibitors. And that's a problem unless they're replaced with other blood pressure-lowering drugs, which are available. But uh, uh, getting yourself bitten by a pit viper is not a good alternative. So I mentioned this story because uh, of the worry about the connection of these angiotensin-converting uh, enzyme inhibitors to COVID-19 and people who have given up taking the drug. And this is something that should not be done. Certainly, you have to consult your physician before giving up any medication. And uh, when you're taking it for uh, hypertension or for congestive heart failure, uh, you cannot just give up this, this drug. But anyway, as I mentioned, it now turns out that there is no real link between taking those medications and COVID-19. And uh, I think it's also quite obvious why at first it looked like there was the link, as I said, because you know, if you're taking these medications, it is because you're taking them for some condition that you have. And those conditions, whether it's hypertension, congestive heart failure, or sometimes people take it for kidney problems or diabetes, these are all conditions that predispose you to the uh, effects of the virus. And uh, luckily, it turns out that uh, there is no significant uh, correlation between the drugs and the, the severity of, uh, of COVID-19. 
So uh, do not consider giving up any ACE inhibitor, or indeed giving up any drug, because you have heard of some connection to uh, COVID-19. Check it out with your physician before you make any change in your life um, in, the, in that uh, fashion. All right, we're going to take a break. After the break, I'll bring you up to date on some new developments in the world of uh, COVID-19 as, uh, as, as far as aerosols go and uh, how one may be able to monitor the spread of this disease by looking at sewage. And uh, after the uh, news at 3.30, we'll talk IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, with Drs. Alain Bitton and Peter Lakatosh. But right now, we're going to take a break and check traffic for you guys. Life's Everyday <laughs> Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, you know that I continue to try to ferret out new information about COVID-19. And uh, this time, I've really ferreted something out because there was a recent study involving, guess what? Ferrets, those interesting little creatures. And apparently their respiratory system is very similar to humans, so they are a good subject to use for studying uh, the transmission of this virus. In a very inventive uh, trial, researchers took uh, ferrets, put one in a cage, and connected that cage through a series of pipes that had some elbow bends in it and some filters to another cage where they would put another uh, ferret. And what they wanted to see, how the virus with which they would infect one ferret would be transmitted to the other one, would it or would not. Now, the reason that they use these uh, elbow bends in the pipe was because if you have large droplets, they would never make it through the system. They would bang into the walls of the pipe. And they also had filters in there for large droplets. So the idea was that only if an aerosol were produced by the uh, ferret, would the ferret in the other cage be infected. So they tested this out. They uh, infected the ferret uh, in one cage with the uh, coronavirus and then waited to see what would happen to the ferret in the other cage. And of course, they did this several times with several pairs of, of ferrets. And they found that half the time, not all of the time, but half the time, the ferret in the other cage did get infected with the virus, which meant that it was being transmitted uh, not as droplets, but as an aerosol. Uh, this, of course, just confirms what we've known for quite some time, that uh, this virus can be transmitted in the air through quite some distance. Uh, the large droplets that come out of our mouth, which, which uh, bear most of the virus, do fall to the ground very quickly. But smaller droplets travel further, and when their moisture content evaporates, leaving behind kind of the naked virus, uh, that can travel you know, up to 25, 30 feet. This is uh, not to scare you, just to tell you that one can acquire this infection indoors, uh, as we, of course, already know. Uh, people in restaurants have acquired it, choir practices, meatpacking plants, telephone answering places, you know, so we know that it, it, it does get transmitted uh, indoors. It depends on the volume of the air in the indoor surroundings and what sort of ventilation you have. When you have a large volume of air, then, of course, transmission becomes much, much less uh, likely. 
So skating in an indoor arena, I think, would be quite unlikely to transmit the virus because you have very large volume of air, and anything that comes out of your mouth uh, would be diluted very, very uh, quickly. But from the ferrets, we know that there is uh, certainly aerosol uh, transmission. I also said I was going to mention sewage. There have been stories about uh, the virus being found in, in sewage, and this has scared people, and they have been uh, smashing down the cover of their toilets to make sure that uh, no virus comes out. There is, of course, uh, reason to close the lid of the toilet after you have pooped in there because there are bacteria that are possibly going to emerge when you flush. Remnants of the virus can also emerge, but so far, active virus has not been found in sewage. When you hear all about these tests where they find uh, uh, so-called virus in, in the sewage, what they are looking for are remnants of the RNA of the virus, not the whole virus. So it's, you're not likely to be infected. The reason that people are becoming so interested in, in, the, um, in sewage because it offers a way to monitor how the virus is spreading. When you test uh, sewage, then you know that there's someone in the vicinity who is shedding, shedding uh, virus. And uh, they've located uh, some uh, dorms in universities in this fashion and then asked the students to quarantine just based on the fact that uh, the virus was found in, in sewage. You don't know exactly who it's coming from, but you can monitor a building or a home to find out whether or not there's someone who is infected. So this is going to be more widespread testing. All right, let me just hit the lines here for a moment and let's go to uh, Angelo. Angelo. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. I have a Keurig machine for the coffee and I have a charcoal filter and I use tap water because I drink that water from in Montreal in Laval here. Yeah. How often should I change that filter? Well, that depends on how much coffee you're you're uh, drinking. Two two cups a day. Two cups a day, and uh, this is the, the which size filter is it? Uh, uh, because there's many different kinds of Keurig machines with different kinds of filters. Well, they has a, 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 a for five cups of water. Oh, for five cups of water, and the size of the filter, if you compare it to... Oh, it's like a, an egg, the size of an egg. Okay. I, I, I would say four to six months. Four to six months. Yeah. Okay. And then we can't rinse it or wash it under hot water, no way. Eh? Which, the filter? Yeah. No, no, you you can't. That, that filter, the activated carbon filter, has to be regenerated at high temperature in the absence of oxygen. Okay. All yeah. right. Four to six months. Thank yeah. you very okay. much. Okay. Bye. Uh, let's go to Seema. Hi, Dr. Joe. How Hi. are you? Pretty well. Uh, so I have a quick question to ask you. So vitamin D, my GP was suggesting maybe I take vitamin D. So let's say if I were to take, that's like a thousand, uh, thousand units, I think, right? Yes. They say yes. per day yes. normally. And let's say I eat things that have vitamin D, such as salmon or, you know, cod liver oil. You, can, you or, cannot you know, overdose. Don't worry. You can't. They, no, so no. even if you take, like, some extra, you won't have any, like, health problem because of that. No, you won't. You won't. And, Certainly and not at you, 1,000 IU. Okay. And would you recommend taking uh, at any age of I, vitamin I, yes, D? Yes, I, I think especially here in our climate with, uh, you know, the uh, amount of sunshine that we get during the winter, I think it's a good idea to take a vitamin D supplement. See, the, the thing is that uh, because of the angle that at which the sunlight hits our atmosphere here, uh, there's not enough that 
penetrates in order to trigger the formation of vitamin D. You know, mm -hmm. vitamin D is said to be the sunshine vitamin. Of course, it isn't found in sunshine. Right. Uh, it is the energy of the sunlight that, that uh, causes a, a precursor in the skin to be converted to vitamin D. So you do need the, the sunlight for that. Uh, so I think it's a it's a good idea. Now many of the uh, effects of vitamin D have been exaggerated. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it's been claimed that it's a good treatment for asthma, heart disease. Most of those have not been worn out, borne out. However, uh, now some of the stuff that we're seeing uh, about COVID nineteen mm -hmm. is is interesting. Uh, because there have been a number of studies showing that people who have a, a severe case of COVID-19 are people who have low blood levels of vitamin D. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you have to be careful not to jump to a conclusion too easily about this is because people who have low levels of vitamin D may have other uh, you know, comorbidities and they may have a different lifestyle as well. They may be eating you know, all the wrong foods, so that, that may be a contributor. However, it, it, it's becoming you know, more and more compelling that, that uh, we need to have uh, sufficient uh, vitamin, uh, vitamin D. And uh, unfortunately, the studies that have been done, there have been a few intervention studies about COVID-19 uh, in hospitals, you know, people who have low levels, they've been boosted up with supplements mm -hmm. uh, and they did do better. But in those cases, the amounts that were used were far, far greater than what you find in supplements. So the jury is okay. still out on that one. But but I think you have nothing to worry about when you're taking a thousand IU of vitamin D a day. Okay, very okay. good. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. Have a good day. All right. We're going to take a break here. We're going to check the news. And after that, we'll come back and talk about inflammatory bowel disease with Drs. Alain Bitton and Peter Lakatosh. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Inflammatory bowel disease, unfortunately, is not a rare condition. And uh, there's a great deal of research in this area and a great deal of interest. Every year, the McGill IBD Research Group holds a fundraiser, and uh, usually with a nice bit of entertainment thrown in in order to try to raise funds for this very important uh, condition, at least research uh, into it. Uh, this year, the uh, event is being held in memory of Dr. Ernie Seedman, who was a great colleague of ours at McGill, uh, a really fine gentleman who passed away uh, this past year. He was one of the moving forces be behind this uh, McGill IBD uh, fundraising uh, event. So it certainly is uh, very uh, important to, to recognize his uh, involvement with this. And uh, it's really very pleasing to see that he's being honored in, in this way. Uh, I think is. I also like this year's event because the this is online, of course, as everything is now. Uh, the guest is going to be mentalist Oz Perlman. If you've never seen Oz before, uh, certainly worth watching. I'm not sure how he's going to do this on Zoom, but it's going to be uh, very interesting. Anyway, to talk about inflammatory bowel disease and uh, fundraising and what this disease is, we've invited Dr. Alain Bitton and uh, Dr. Peter Lokatosh, and I know that I've pronounced that uh, name well because we have the same background, uh, to, to chat with us here. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Welcome, Joe. Thank, so, thank you, Joe. Um, so, Peter, was I right? I pronounced your name well. 
Thank you very much. That was perfect. I have I have heard so much, you know, pronunciations from you know Greek to you know Romanian, but actually it's Hungarian. So you 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 guessed right. Yeah. Um, so, oh, okay, so let's start with uh, first just a very brief description. Uh, what is yeah. IBD? What are the different conditions that are uh, under this umbrella? So, Joe, if, if I can start. First of all, thank you for having Dr. Lakatos and myself <laughs> on your radio show. You, uh, you almost got it right. I almost Look. got it. To give the opportunity to talk a bit about IBD and, and our group at McGill and, and in particular at our NUH IBD Center. So, really, uh, inflammatory bowel disease is a chronic inflammatory condition of the digestive tract. Uh, in which patients may actually have flares of disease alternating with periods of remission. And there are two conditions, usually we call, one is called ulcerative colitis, which is confined to the colon, and one is called Crohn's disease, which can affect, affect any part of the digestive tract. And during flares, uh, patients may have symptoms such as fatigue, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and weight loss. And what's important to remember with this condition is that it's really a lifelong condition. And patients with IBD are living with uh, fluctuating symptoms, with the unpredictability of flares, uh, uncertainty about the medical therapies and their side effects, living with potential complications, and importantly, especially during this, this pandemic time, uh, psychosocial stress that is uh, generated. And uh, it affects the, mainly the patients from 15 to 35 years old, but it can affect uh, any, any other age. So, P Peter, let me let me switch to Peter here for a moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There have been a, a number of developments in pharmaceuticals uh, over the, the past few years, especially the biologicals, which have had a big impact on, on Crohn's disease. So what have you seen in, in your practice in, in, in terms of, of these medications and how they have made the life of patients easier? Yes, that's absolutely correct. So nowadays we are actually very lucky to, you know, be, being able to offer a new set, a new armamentarium of medication, and at exactly the biologicals. I would say during my career, which is now spanning over about 20 years, a little bit more, I have seen really a revolution, not just an evolution, but really a revolution of the therapies of both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And with these biological therapies that mainly try to better control not really suppress, but better control the inflammatory process in the gut. We have been reaching, you know, clinical, let's say, cure or symptom-free status in, in patients for which before surgery was really the option. So it has been like, look, really clearly changing the, you know, let's say the expectation for these young, you know, folks with this disease. No, I mean, I've seen some really interesting results with this. I had a graduate student who had uh, terrible, terrible Crohn's. I mean, going going to the, the bathroom dozens of times a day, you know, and uh, then out came Remicade, and it was like a miracle for him. I mean, he, he's now li leading a, a, a totally in a normal life, a very successful career. Now, I know, of course, it doesn't work in everyone like that, but, uh, you know, this case that I saw was just amazing. Yeah, well, I guess. And just to add to that, I mean, we, we, we started first with Remicade, but now we have multiple drugs available. And down the pipeline, there's even more exciting drugs coming. And, and, uh, and I think this is, as, as Peter said, this has been a great revolution. And it's clearly changed the lives of our patients. Uh, and, and there is, for the future, there are new drugs coming down the pipeline, which I think is something really important to, uh, to, to, to stress. Now, of course, uh, 
no matter what scientific paper we look at, it always ends with, and more research is needed, right? <laughs> and that, of course, is true no matter what area of science or medicine we're, we're looking at. And uh, when we say more research is needed, uh, that translates to more money is needed, uh, which is the, the reason that uh, one holds fundraisers. And uh, the one that is being held now is going to be on, on Zoom. This is going to be a very interesting venture to see how, how this works. Uh, where where can people get more information about this? So actually, you have to just log in and uh, search for the MUHC IBD Center or the IBD Research Group website, and then you will get all the information and be actually pretty much pre-tested. You know, the Zoom event by this year, we understood that you know it's really a challenge mentally as well as physically for the patients to you know keep the contact with the center. And this is why we not only offer a rapid access, you know, 24-7 email, you know, with a quick response and avoiding the patients to go to the ER, but the emergency room. But we also help some, you know, direct Zoom, you know, uh, back and forth questioning or lecturing events, much more looking into the psychology of IBD, how to cope with the disease during the COVID, so this type of event. So I actually, with my colleagues, were having like free uh, online, you know, presentations, lecturing events so far. It went very well. I very much hope that the uh, fundraiser will be no exception. Well, I know both of you, of course, are practicing gastroenterologists. So uh, undoubtedly, COVID-19 has changed the way that, that you practice. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. And I also want to ask you about uh, diet because one of the first things that people do when they are diagnosed with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis is they ask, you know, what, what should I do? What can I, simple changes can I make in my life in, in, in terms of diet? So I want to discuss that with you, but uh, we do have to take a bit of a break. So if you can stay with us uh, for a couple of minutes here while we check out uh, traffic and pay for some of the bills here that the radio station uh, has to pay. Uh, we'll uh, get back to you and, and talk a bit more about uh, IBD and how your practice has changed and about possible dietary interventions. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. My guests are Dr. Alain Bitton and Peter Lokotosh, uh, both gastroenterologists and we're talking about a fundraiser on November 12th. It's called 2020 Laugh Your Butt Off. And uh, the guest is Oz Perlman, who's a mentalist, very, very uh, entertaining. You can get all the info. All you have to do is Google McGill IBD, and you'll see everything uh, there. Uh, so, um, I, yeah, so, yeah. So maybe we talk a bit about potentially how COVID pandemic has changed. Uh, yes, how practice. it changed your practice. So I think it's actually changed significantly. So we've had to reconfigure the, uh, the IBD clinic where we work to ensure safety. So the usual measures, you know, wearing masks, distancing, hand hygiene. And um, most of our visits now that, that are non-urgent are done by phone. And, and it, this really made us realize something interesting that there are many uh, visits that actually can, can be dealt with just by answering questions to patients on the phone. And what we do is we screen for uh, patients that need to be seen in person, and we have them come into the clinic in order to avoid the emergency room uh, visit. And we're also looking at other means of monitoring our patients. 
So through blood and through what's called the stool uh, fecal calprotectin, which is a marker of inflammation in the stool, and patients can actually bring a stool sample to a clinic or uh, and then we can actually measure the inflammation in the stool, and this gives us an indirect indication if their disease is active. And we want to encourage patients actually to, to participate in daycare. So there are, uh, for example, in Crohn's colitis, there's a new app called MyGut, which actually uh, empowers them and allows them to, to monitor their symptoms and directly relate uh, these, uh, these symptoms to our, to our clinics. Um, and I, I just want to add one point that's really uh, instrumental are IBD nurses. The nurses are on the front lines. They've done an extraordinary job during the, this pandemic to actually uh, guide our patients and reassure them and, and act as uh, facilitators. So it has changed a lot uh, uh, with this pandemic. And I, and I suspect that when the pandemic's over, some of this will still, will still remain. Peter, are you more nervous doing procedures now? No, actually not. And uh, as you have just heard, you know, one of my mandates was when I was invited here to work in Montreal to actually be able to offer what we call a rapid access type of, you know, uh, clinic for our patients. And uh, just, you know, we set it up before the COVID and it was hot tested, so to say, in the pandemic and it, it was just functioning great. And that means that uh, actually we really, you know, have really a constant uh, continuous, you know, uh, helpline. Uh, so to say to our patients uh, and through the nurses and uh, one of the specialists, we triage. And I was very, very happy and I'm very proud to say that even during the darkest hour of the lockdown, whenever a patient needed a face-to-face -face visit, we could offer that. Also now uh, with the uh, endoscopy procedures, again, uh, I have to be very, very uh, proud to tell that we didn't have any accidents at the McGill, uh, you know, uh, endoscopy suite, so we don't have problems with COVID. We pre-screen our patients and test for COVID if needed. If in case of symptoms, we may delay a little bit some of the procedures, but all of the procedures that are needed to be done are actually done at the moment. So that, that's actually uh, good access. And also uh, with endoscopies, not too much delay anymore. I was uh, earlier in the show. I was uh, talking about uh, testing for the virus in, in uh, sewage and in fecal matter, mm -hmm. and uh, you do find RNA segments of the virus, although not not uh, the entire virus, uh, which is a good way to monitor in cities. You know how how widespread the infection may be. But is this is this something that concerns you at all? That viral fragments have been found in fecal matter. Uh, actually, this is now known that uh, there is about 4% of the patients with diarrhea that might actually be, uh, you know, having some virus. But, you know, we have to do the precautions during all the procedures. And once again, all the patients with any uh, symptoms, be it cough or at this point, uh, diarrhea, they will be tested uh, not just by the questionnaires, but also for, you know, the COVID test mm -hmm. prior to the procedure. So we try to actually... Uh, bring the safety and hygiene as high as possible, not just for the team, but also for obviously the other patients as well. Yeah. I think a point that, that we should add is that uh, there has there has been a lot of concern from patients about going to the hospital to have these tests uh, uh, because concern of, of uh, contracting COVID. And, and just to, to uh, add to Peter's point, um, you know, we, we urge patients not to uh, not to avoid avoid their test, and that we do use as much as possible all, all the measures, uh, you know, that 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 Peter mentioned. Um, and so it's really important because there has been a backlog that's created certainly in the beginning of the of the pandemic, 
when there was a really a reduction in, in, in endoscopy activities that were, were going on. So I think this is something that's important to uh, to uh, stress with our patients. Okay, let me get back to the question that I, I, I posed earlier uh, about diet. And uh, because I, I know that when people are, are diagnosed, you know, it's one of the first things is, you know, can I help this with diet? What's your experience with that? Shall I take it? Okay, so I take it. Uh, I think, you know, that's a very important point. Whenever you have something that's affecting your GI tract, you always think, okay, diet will actually change it. And you are not far from the truth when you say that, yes, some dietary, like, you know, modifications might help to better control symptoms. But let's make it absolutely clear. Unfortunately, there is no full control with diet. However, there is something called elementary diet, which means that you don't consume like real food, just really the uh, small particles. Then uh, in children, it might work. So they have studies to show that in, in patients starting at a very young age before actually the puberty, that might be an early way of therapy as well. In adults, it has not been so successful, but it's absolutely true that any patient has to be measured. And if they have special like, you know, complications like stenotic disease, some narrowing or fistula, additional like discharge anywhere else, then we try to modify, you know, the diet accordingly, discuss through, you know, what they should avoid, too spicy, like, you know, too heavy uh, uh, food, and then have the dietitian to help us, you know, with this kind of feeling as well. Is there any evidence that a vegetarian diet may be preferable to a, a carnivorous diet? So the special diets have been shown more to be, you know, modifying the risk to get the Crohn's disease or the colitis. So it's known that really the processed red meat food uh, rich diet might give you a little bit higher risk to altogether get the Crohn's disease or the colitis. But there is no clear evidence that it would uh, change the uh, relapse frequency. Whenever you have active disease, then of course you might be more symptomatic, you know, if you don't follow some dietary but not too strict. Now, I know. I mean, there are certain foods like popcorn, yeah. for example, right? Yeah. Which, Correct. Which, which, which trouble a lot of people. Correct. So, so uh, you know, to, to Peter's point, the, uh, I mean, the only studies that have actually shown to, to have a, in terms of diet, having an impact on disease course or disease flares is the elemental diets. Uh, um, you know, there are other diets that have been looked at, restrictive diets or low food, food uh, FODMAP diets, which are, helpful in alleviating the symptoms, but not really uh, affecting the actual inflammatory state of, of the disease. Okay, gentlemen, just uh, one last question. I, this uh, fundraiser is dedicated to uh, uh, Ernie. Uh, just a sentence or two about memories of Ernie. I think that's well, you, Alan. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Ernie was a, was a giant in the field of uh, inflammatory uh, bowel disease. And um, you know, over the work over the years, he worked tirelessly, and his main goal was really to improve the lives of his patients through his research and through the compassionate care that he, he provided. And uh, he's going to be uh, uh, memorialized, talked about at this event. And if anyone wants more information, it's very easy to get these days. You know, you just go and Google. So put in McGill IBD Research Group, and you will get all the information. So, gentlemen, thanks very much for joining uh, uh, us here today, and uh, all the best with the fundraiser. And uh, I know that the money is going to be put to very, very good use. 
Thank you very much. Thank you much, Joe. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it. We are smack out of time, but we will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>